Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill. Tonight's films feature the fantastic Mr. Monkeybone. And so it begins. Each week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. And I am mother cussing Adam Thomas. And I am Thomas Mariani saying, that was a bad intro, Adam. You did a bad intro. Yeah, probably. Uh, but joining us at 24 frames per second is a returning guest who uh, loves talking animation with us, because he was on our general animation episode ages ago, and he also talked about Batman Mask of the Phantasm with us in our DC Comics episode. It is Mr. Scott Johnson. Scott, how are you? Hello, I'm Homo Cervasus. I drink beer and watch cartoons. <laughs> I think that's all of our species, right? Yeah, pretty much. Sometimes yeah. it's cider, sometimes it's wine. That delicious cider, of course. That just made me homo erectus. Melted uh. gold. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, so this week, um, in honor of the Leica production um, Missing Link just recently came out, we are talking about stop-motion animation. Obviously, it's the process by which animators spend several hours animating, like, seconds of footage per day. What would you guys say, like, is the thing that makes stop motion a bit more distinct than other forms of animation? It, it's it's so bizarre looking, like, especially when done against live action, things like that. There's something otherworldly about it that it's one of the only forms, like, like even with bad CG, you can look at it and go, oh, that's just bad CG. But stop motion animation just adds something to it. it it's just, I don't know how to explain it. It's just, it's... Totally groundbreaking and mind-blowing to me. Something I've discovered about stop-motion from re-watching it over the years is just that because it's so meticulously made, you like you go through every single step from like every character's eye blink to foot movement, and just the amount of work they put into it makes everything feel so much more grounded and worn in, even more so than normal animation is. And it just really goes to show you just how far people are willing to go when creating their art. And something I think you can find with lots of stop-motion movies is despite the fact you know you're watching some kind of puppet either made from foam or or clay or what have you, you just feel so engrossed and engaged and they feel so emotionally real. Right, yeah, that's the thing is for the purposes of our show, we have a good and a bad feature and we picked randomly at the end of our last episode. I had the two bad choices and it was so difficult to find, like, especially a fully stop-motion animated feature that I thought was, like, terrible by any extent. Like, even in our bad feature, we'll probably get into this, but the stop-motion is not at all the problem with that movie. It's, like, the one good thing about that movie, if nothing else. The only one, honestly, in recent years is what was almost our choice, and was a choice when I told Scott we're going to do stop-motion, he's like, please don't do this movie, was Helen Back. Um, Oh, God. I mean, I... I have seen it, and no one about it, I think it's the worst animated movie I've ever watched. Oh, animated in general. Animated in general, just period. 
Wow. It, it might be. I mean, if not, it's in the top five. I'll give it that. It's horrible. I was thinking you were going to pull Corpse Bride, and I'm like, God damn it, please, no. That one's it's just so boring, boring, though. But interesting, that was the first uh, sort of like a production in any case. It was like they did the animation for that, and it was before they sort of found their brand with stuff like Coraline and other things later, which, I mean, they're, along with Argman, keeping stop motion alive right now, and they're doing a great job of it. There's lots of little pockets of various, I would say, animation studios keeping animation alive. I think there's uh, Percival Productions, which does animated features. And then we have uh, Starburns Industries, which does all of his stuff. So, like, Moral Oral, Pretty Face is Going to Hell, uh, that stuff. Or I believe they also did the Anomalisa, right? I believe, yeah, they did. Yeah, which is a great, underrated, very adult stop-motion animated movie that's wonderful. Um, But... Uh, that's not the movie we're talking about today. We're talking about two stop-motion animated films here. Uh, first is Fantastic Mr. Fox, Wes Anderson's movie from 2009. And then we're talking about uh, Monkey Bone, which has a lot of stop-motion elements and is also a combination with live-action from Henry Selleck. So it's interesting, we're talking about two movies where one is a live-action director going to stop-motion and the other is a stop-motion director going to live-action for the most part there. So uh, it yields very interesting results, to say the least. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, let's get started with our Cussin' Good feature. It is a Fantastic Mr. Fox. Welcome to the fantastic world of Mr. Fox. His life is fantastic. His neighbors, not so fantastic. They're digging us out. But they're about to discover he's one fox you can't outfox. This fall... It's all about Fantastic. You really are fantastic. I try. Fantastic Mr. Fox. So Fantastic Mr. Fox uh, came out November 13th, 2009, um, and is directed, as we mentioned, by Wes Anderson, who before this obviously was known for doing sort of the quirky indie films that white hipsters love, um, like myself, admittingly. Oh, me too. I'm a huge Wes Anderson fan. I was like Royal Tenenbaums, uh, Rushmore, uh, Bottle Rocket, um, uh, The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, which had some stop motion elements that were done yep. by Henry Selleck, interestingly enough, um, and we'll get to him in a bit. So this is his first fully stop motion feature. He would later go on to do Isle of Dogs, which was his most recent feature. That's also stop motion. And it's based on the Roald Dahl children's book and uh, has a very eclectic cast and is pretty unique amongst other stop-motion features, because this came out the same year as Coraline, which Selleck directed and was the first big Leica production that was all their own. And what's what's interesting is really just how specifically distinctive this is compared to a lot of the other stop-motion gets a lot more sort of fine-tuned, you get, like, your sort of the facial features are a lot more exact. What I like about Fantastic Mr. Fox is there's a lot of rough edges, which kind of works for the fact that it stars a bunch of shaggy animals, wild animals, as Mr. Fox would say. Yeah, uh, 2009 in general was a fantastic year for animation. Uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox wasn't just the only stop-motion feature. There was an Australian movie called Mary and Max, which is a bit more dark and depressing version of stop-motion with Philip Seymour Hoffman. And then there's a French movie called A Town Called Panic, which is more like pop art surreal. But when you see the combination of Wes Anderson, and he has his very unique, particular auteur style with just like the... Doll houses, the dysfunctional families, the very like specific color palettes that he uses with very dry, witty characters. You realize, oh, these two things fit like a glove. 
Well, well, yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with that. I think, what, as you mentioned, every single one of his movies has sort of, like, a dollhouse style to it, where you have sort of, like, the the breakdown of, like, say, in the Royal Tenenbaums, the huge house, and every single room in it. Um, it's very much in a dollhouse aesthetic, so he does fit perfectly for this. Um, even though we should give credit also to the uh, director of the actual stop motion is uh, Mark Gustafson, and obviously all the stop motion animators as well, where like basically Wes Anderson did a lot of like, hey, here's what I want the poses to be. And um, they had all these different people actually do the animation, which I, I found this out. There's one shot when the um, that party gets drowned out by the cider and they are in the sewer for the first time and it's that one shot of all the characters just looking around dysfunctional and weird that shot is about 18 seconds long and it took the one animator to do that nine days oh god (laughs) yeah if you ever look up like what a stop motion animator did to create certain things your jaw will just hit the floor like you almost feel bad for them that they work so hard to create something that lasts so little yeah, I personally would not have the patience. Well, I mean, maybe, but yeah, probably not have the patience to do it. Um, but hey, I'm glad there are guys that do, because those 18 seconds, you didn't notice them that they were bad, so it worked. Right, and Adam, this was your pick, so go into a bit more oh, of like why you decided to pick Fantastic Mr. Fox. Well, when this movie came out, I hopped on my giant-wheeled bicycle uh, with my scarf and pipe and went and saw it. Um, with all the other hipsters. While you were playing the kinks on the way over on your Walkman. Yeah, 100%. Well, yeah, dude. Come on, man. I only go tape. Drinking a PVR. I actually did not see this when it first came out. That was all. I'm a liar. I apologize. I'm a cussing liar. I think today might have been the first time I've actually been able to watch this movie from beginning to end, uninterrupted. I think I've seen segments of it. So I've seen the whole movie probably a couple times, but never at once, uh, just because, you know, stuff with the kid, things pop up, things happen. I always remember liking it. I always remember there being parts that make me laugh. There's parts that, you know, you feel for characters in it. And the voice acting in this is just spectacular. It's some of the best voice acting, in at least in a stop-motion animation film. And it fits Anderson's um, style completely even so far as the title cards and when they're talking about the plan and it shows on screen where they're going to go and things like that. I mean, this is just a perfect Wes Anderson film. Yeah, it's especially interesting with the voice acting you mentioned that as I found out how many different diverse places that these vocal performances were recorded in. George Clooney, who plays Mr. Fox, the Bill Murray, who plays the Badger character, and then Wallace Walidarski, who I found out is an early Simpsons writer was on, like, during the first three or so seasons, one of the like, people that helped shape oh. that show, basically. No kidding. Uh, he plays the possum here, and they actually recorded all of their stuff at a farm that where they were, like, actually running around in the grass and stuff, so some of that foley that's in there when they're, like, running around outside is actual, like, foley. And they were actually recording in, like, these, you know, sort of, like, farm areas or inside, like, the big farmhouse. Um, and there's actual footage of that on, I have the Criterion Edition Blu-ray, <laughs> yes, quite. It came with mustache wax. <laughs> yep, it did. I need it. What's interesting is seeing that footage of like how much of that is actually transposed and as reference for the stop motion animators to the point where the bit where he's eating the toast at breakfast and he turns into a wild rabbit animal is like oh. shot for shot similar to George Clooney doing that in the footage. He's like actually eating toast like <laughs> like that. It's it's pretty great. That's what I mean with stop motion having a very lived-in feel, is that you, you definitely get the, the feeling that not only was everything created from the 
from the dolls to the animals to the various settings, even they point out like, oh, look at the very painterly backgrounds and like even just little frames going on there that you just get this whole essence of just this fall setting in probably London where all this unique stuff happens. And what I really appreciate here is that I would call this movie probably the most approachable Wes Anderson movie because where many people are concerned that people kind of act very flat and dry within Wes Anderson's movies, here the casting is inspired and because the dialogue is so quick with all the quick motions of all the different characters going on, that it feels just very, very natural. It's already perfect that you get George Clooney to play a character who basically wants to go back and do more heists, but I think that's all, all the better to what this kind of built for where Wes Anderson's career would go later on. Yeah, I will definitely say, uh, as I said on Twitter, this is the best Oceans movie. I'll get the fuck out of here. It's not even comparable. I'm joking, obviously, but what I think makes it slightly more comparable is the fact that when you watch this and you see the Fox actually go back to his heisting Mm. days, as it were, you actually still feel invested because I always thought like with a Danny Ocean, like he has like some kind of grounded bit with like him and Julia Roberts, I guess. But in this case, I feel so much more for this goddamn Fox puppet who I think is definitely like a much more complex character in the way that like a lot of Wes Anderson's sort of male protagonists are, where he's not that different from like Gene Hackman or Tannenbaums or anything like that, where despite being a Fox character, he's a three-dimensional human being who has a lot of flaws and a lot of issues, but at the same time does love his family, and you see how all these characters bounce off of it, especially... I love Meryl Streep as the Mrs. Fox. I think she is so incredible as that character. With a lot lot on the page, I think she makes her such a believable, engaging character as well, where she has been through so much, and she does love this guy, but she realizes, like, maybe I did make the wrong decision. Maybe this guy is just too wild a person for me to ever settle down with. I think he might be dangerous for my son. Which is crazy to me, because Meryl Streep has never really done anything of note. Well, no, she, she hasn't done a lot of things, you're right, yeah. No, no, I agree with you, though. No, for something that is really a more or less a background character, she breathes a whole lot of life into it. And I also, I didn't get really a Danny Ocean vibe from Fox in this one. I got more a, um, oh, brother, we're out, though, George Clooney. There was a bit of that, too, which is great. <laughs> yeah, oh, God, <laughs> I think they really sell something great here because having watched this a second time, uh, I noticed anytime there's any action going on, like it gets very fast paced. Like whenever they're doing a heist or they're moving things along, they're just very quick, very snappy. But then when like they focus straight on characters, like they have like sometimes the character look directly at back at the camera, which happens a lot in this movie. You realize like their emotions are very subtle. Like you, you, you can tell that they're kind like when their eyebrows move, like they're definitely making various expressions. But I think that just gives so much more potency to when they do feel something. It's kind of like when you stare at their eyes for a long time and then you realize, oh, they're starting to develop water around there. Oh, they're crying. Oh, oh, that means that means a lot. Or even they use it comedically like the way that that Kylie will kind of like listen to whatever Mr. Fox is saying and then he'll just have like swirls in his eyes. Right. I, I agree with you about especially the crying thing in this and in Isle of Dogs as well. Nothing represents like still lingering ideas of like movie magic to me like seeing a stop motion animation character actually cry tears. That's beautiful to see, honestly, in this movie. Yeah, done very, very well. Because I have seen in other movies, and it kind of looks like, you know, they just be clear glue down their face. Uh, But this one, I mean, 
you can literally see him welling up. It's it's just God damn it, I love this movie so much. What I really appreciate here is just that with you have all these different characters and they're just their animal names, but he's able to drill out so much great performances, even if they're used once. Like you have the great scene where uh, Owen Wilson is the coach explaining how this weird animal cricket game is played. And then you get the big cheese, which is Willem Dafoe as this rat who defends oh, the yeah, cider, amazing. who is amazing. Adrian Brody is the field mouse. <laughs> which oh, is so that's... great. He has like two <laughs> lines in the movie. It's so great. <laughs> I know. Yeah. It's perfect. <laughs> this to me is the perfect example of a movie that kids can really get into and enjoy and adults as well. I mean, there's plenty of humor for adults in here as well as the kids. There's so many great examples of just like very visual gags that anybody could get, but also just the back and forth, like the obviously the cussing thing, which we're referencing. There's a yes. whole back and forth between him and Bill Murray. That's hysterical. Oh, oh, God. Oh, that, so well, that has the most relatable 2019 line, which is, I understand what you're saying, and your comments are valuable, but I'm going to ignore your advice. Yeah, because <laughs> you will. Because I am. There's also even just, like, really great visual gags. Like, especially upon this watch, I forgot how much I love the whole you're, we're glowing bit. And it just yeah. cuts to, they have, like, a, a version that has, like, a light fixture inside of the character. Oh, yeah, they look like lawn animals. They yeah, right. You have this $100,000 puppet, and now it's a $10, like, plastic thing. Right. <laughs> that's, I, I, that's what I love so much, is that there is, like, I agree, so many great visual bits and pieces, especially just with how many different scales they use, because they talk about this, like, on all the, the uh, Blu-ray extras, about how there are, like, at least four different versions of every puppet for, like, any different scene, where it's like, there's obviously the close-up ones that are pretty big, like, about, you know, 14 inches or so tall, and then you have, like, half-scale for, like, certain wider shots, and then teeny tiny ones for super wide shots, like the opening of Mr. Fox over right by the tree, that mm-hmm. is, a, like, a super miniature, like, I think, three-inch box that can still move around. Which I want one of those for my home. The dedication to the craft here is crazy. I think Mr. Fox alone has 17 different, like, puppets or outfits. I mean, how much tweed did Wes Anderson have to use from his own collection to make all those suits? <laughs> He sacrificed so many corduroy outfits. So many. (laughs) R.I.P. While I did like Meryl Streep, and I really do like uh, Clooney and all of them, man, Schwartzman in this kills me. He is such just a little crazy person. (laughs) That's the thing. He's just kind of a dick. And you know why he's a dick? Because his father doesn't fucking acknowledge him at all. No, no, no. It's like, I get why he's weird. I get why he's that way. Because you feel kind of bad for uh, Christopherson, who, his cousin who comes over. And, you know, he is great. Like, he's the person you'd want to hang out with. But you can tell that just, like, it festers within him. It's like, why do you got to be so perfect? Why does the girl got to like you? Why do you got to be good at sports? Why does my dad have to like you? Yeah, I love the bit so much where Christopherson does, like, the dive. And then Ash talks about, like, well, yeah. I guess I don't think you guys acknowledge me as an athlete. And then Mr. Fox's head just pokes out behind him, like, what's the subtext here? Maybe my favorite bit of the whole movie. It's such a okay. perfectly yeah, animated like shot. Ash spits on the floor all the time. <laughs> or when, like, uh, he says something really bad to Christopherson and he leaves to go meditate. His mom is just like, you need to go apologize to him in about 30 minutes when he's done meditating. Me? Apologize to him? Why would I apologize to him? It's such a great, like, asshole teenager thing. That's so perfect. I, yeah, I agree. Schwartzman does that so well. And I think he's, been, obviously, he's been doing that since he really started with Wes Anderson with Rushmore. It's one of my favorite yep. performances in anything. Because he's such so... a perfect, overachieving piece of shit. He's such a... I love also, probably the underrated MVP of this movie to me is Michael Gambon. 
as the main of the Bogus Bunsen Bean oh, yeah, farmers. Great. He is genuinely intimidating. It's it's oh. a credit to like his voice acting and also the uh, animation on that character. He's very sinister, especially that shot where it's the other two farmers talking to him and he's like in cascaded shadow and he's just like holding his gun. Oh yes, he's pretty wildly, isn't he? And then he goes up and starts like shooting everywhere and he's like, we're going to find him, we're going to qual him, we're going to kill him. Immediately. Yeah, he shoots out all the lights. <laughs> right, and it doesn't help. Also, um, he has a very distinct, familiar look, uh, not too dissimilar from author Roald Dahl. Oh, see, I didn't know that. Yeah, if you look at pictures like Roald Dahl, he looks exactly like that puppet. <laughs> this might be my favorite Roald Dahl adaptation. Or I mean, I haven't read this book since I was a child. I remember vaguely reading this book because it actually follows sort of like the second act is basically the length of the whole story. And Wes Anderson created the first act and the third act afterward. It adapts his style, though, in terms of there are children's stories that, like Adam mentioned, like a child could get interested in. But there are still at the same time stakes going on in terms of, like, these animals will easily die. Well, the whole point of the movie is I'm trying to kill them, too. You it, know? I mean, it's, it's brutal. It, it's easily the closest in tone to any Roald Dahl adaptation because it does cut, walk the line between dark but also for children pretty well. Right. And uh, I did just go look, and yes, he looks 100% exactly like Roald Dahl. And I like that he lives only off his hard cider. He's got a liquid right. diet. Yeah, <laughs> liquid diet, it's his hard cider. That was a good point. It, it is. It gets very dark. It gets super brutal. I mean, the movie starts with them killing birds, for God's sakes. I can see how kids, that would kind of freak them out a little bit, maybe. I think it goes to show that you don't necessarily need an artist behind an animated movie because Wes Anderson's eye for direction really shows that in terms of he knows when to cut away. He knows when to show things at the right time. Because like when they have scenes when they imply death, like when uh, Mr. Fox uh, snaps down on a chicken's neck or like when the rat gets electrocuted, they know how to play with shadow or just like directing the camera away like because he has that experience he kind of can use it to his advantage which is why i think he wanted to stay in stop motion well right yeah because it, it fits his a lot of his stylistic ideas especially in terms of the, the look of this movie as well this is a perfect movie to like put on when autumn starts though the way that it has like all the auburn colors and the, the look of like the leaves turning and all this other stuff this feels like the perfect movie to put on like late september early october when the autumn season would start because you just like it immerses you in that like pre-Halloween, pre-Thanksgiving uh, kind of stuff. There's even like a bit of the Halloween stuff where like the kids are dressed up at that party during like the at the end of the second act, like with a little badger in a skeleton outfit. It, it immerses you, especially in that sort of season, even. And especially, it also helps to mirror Mr. Fox, who's going through sort of like a midlife crisis. <laughs> I love his line, like, um, you know, my father died at seven and a half. Fox years old. I'm seven. I, I need to get my shit together. I don't want to be in this hole anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, that's definitely a good point. This this would fit right at home with the coming of the seasons. Uh, you know, like with them getting the tree and the leaves and all the animals migrating or getting, you know, stocking up food and everything. The color palette is almost completely orange and brown and yellow and white. The only times you see, like, different colors is, like, when you see a character's eyes or maybe, like, when they, when you see the blueberries – other than that, it's pretty set in a tone, as Wes Anderson has been noted to do. Also, to go back to the stakes thing, I think another one of my favorite scenes in the movie is we talk about sort of the fight that happens between Fox and the Rat, where, like, Rat is dying, I think is such a weirdly beautiful moment. I remember watching this the first time and being so surprised by how 
honestly kind of beautiful that was. Just a weird moment between two people who hate each other, but one of them's dying, and there's at least enough of a respect to, like, give him this weird version of his dying wish with, like, the mud and all this other stuff, then putting him out to sea. Like, and that is a very common theme as well in Wes Anderson movies, where, like, one per- when the one person dies, like, in every single Wes Anderson movie, immediately it has this, like, beautiful sort of respect between the living and the dying person. I, I just, I, I love that bit especially. It feels, especially for a children's movie, you don't usually get moments like that. But yeah, you don't get that a lot, man. And like I said, my kid, who's not even four years old, sat and watched this entire movie, and then it was over. I really liked that movie, Daddy. Like, oh, okay, cool. So we'll, we'll watch, definitely watch it again. And like I said, I, this is my first time straight through, and I, I was just laughing and got kind of like bummed out in parts. When he loses his tail, I love that they just bandage the back of his pajama shirt <laughs> or whatever. Like, if they don't even actually bandage his butt, it's just his clothes. And yeah, Willem Dafoe again as the rat. Oh my God. When he's dancing and like <laughs> doing the old school, like, greaser knife fight moves oh just yeah, perfect a lot of west side story lots of yeah. <laughs> um a lot lots of fossey style uh bits and pieces exactly. there you went away with the town tart didn't you but also just like he has the most interesting flexible moves that like it's something that you could see a wes anderson character doing except not in the physicality of like an actual human being but still feels like a wes anderson move like when he throws his knife over then he bumps it at the hip back to the other hand Mm-hmm. Stuff, stuff like that. Just that feels perfect for Wes Anderson, but it's finally him realizing just sort of like the just out of human reach ideas that he can do. The climax of this movie has like the most scale, really, of any Wes Anderson movie that I can think of prior to this. I think Grand Budapest Hotel has similar things to this in its climax, where the animals are attacking and there's like huge fires that are going on, all this other stuff. The scale on that's so interesting, where it just feels like, oh wow, this is the first Wes Anderson movie to take place like on a block and huge actions going on. It's it's his first sort of near foray into action filmmaking, honestly, with that. And that's also another great example of stop motion, where like the fires. I found out, like, the little plates of the fire that are put in and out, those are, like, bars of clear orange soap. Oh, that's awesome. I think I read that they would do tricks like that for the stop-motion thing. Like, I think whenever you see the water, it's saran wrap. Or when yes. you see the styrofoam coming out with the, with the fires, it is just a great little touch. Uh, one thing we can't forget is, especially during the climax, was how they were playing the music, uh, Bogus Bunsen Bean theme, while anarchy was raining down. Uh, gotta give credit to... Wes Anderson's common collaborator, Alexander Desplat, who did a great job with the score here. Yeah, and he yeah, was nominated yeah. as well for an Oscar for it. It's an amazing score, yeah. And also, of course, Wes Anderson being him also has to include a lot of uh, 60s, 70s era pop songs. A lot of Beach Boys, which on paper wouldn't fit a Fantastic Mr. Fox movie, but in practice is great. Right from the heroes and villains bit at the beginning. Oh, yeah, definitely, dude. And the thing is, too, a lot of the Beach Boys songs are incredibly dark, too, when you actually listen to them. So it really did fit. I I, I love Wes Anderson's scores in all of his movies. If it's not, you know, the 60s, 70s pop songs, it's all real whimsical, almost. Well, this Uh, one, I would say, is a different era. Although I feel like a lot of Wes Anderson's movies have a certain kind of musical tone to them. It feels very folksy, but in a very fitting way with this movie. And especially like using like the old uh, Beach Boys stuff, but also love the Cole Porter songs or when they play Street Fighting Man when the, when the tree's getting demolished. Love that scene. Right, or even like a lot of Burl Ives and even um, bits of like Disney things. So there's the Davy Crockett song at the beginning, and then later on they play that one song from the Robin Hood Fox movie. 
the the love song. Yeah, I noticed that just because that happens to be one of my favorite Disney movies for some reason. It feels like a song that he would have found from like an obscure seventies LP. <laughs> also, at the same time, right? It, oh yeah, hundred percent. But I guess we could keep heaping praise on Fantastic Mr. Fox, but I, I think it's time we sort of go into our final thoughts. Then, Scott, your final thoughts on Fantastic Mr. Fox. Oh, just a lovely movie. I kind of reiterate what I said earlier is if you don't know if you like Wes Anderson or not, like maybe his tone, maybe his style, the way he produces things. I think this is a good tester movie to see if you kind of like what he's doing, because being an animated film, you can really appreciate the stop motion and how the actors are are cast and directed to say certain things, but it has his great sense of wit and dialogue. And I think pacing that really pays off here. Personally, I would say this is probably second or third in terms of Wes Anderson of my favorite films. My favorite film of his is Grand Budapest Hotel. But this is really fantastic in terms of like in a year where this got nominated for an award and I could have totally see it winning. I think he really went out of his comfort zone in the best way you want to see an auteur do. So because of that and the way he he combined all these elements together to make a very Wes Anderson, so it's kind of dry and a little bit flat in some places, but still a delightful, engaging experience, I think, for everyone to enjoy. Adam? Yeah, I pretty much echo everything Scott just said. I think this is a perfect um, movie to watch with your kids, uh, especially if you're into Wes Anderson movies. It's a good way to get them maybe interested in his style because it is definitely you know, just dripping with Wes Anderson style. Now, I haven't seen Isle of Dogs yet. I definitely want to, but I just think this is probably, this is easily in my top three as well of Wes Anderson movies. My number one is probably Rushmore and then maybe Life Aquatic and then this, but those two are probably tied. Um, I just think this is a fantastic film. How appropriate. What a great adjective. Uh-huh. Oh, I see what happened. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I love this one too. I do agree. It's also um, probably my third favorite amongst his films. But I also agree. I love the Grand Budapest Hotel and Royal Tenenbaums is still my favorite. I still it has my favorite Gene Hackman performance, honestly, in anything. And I, that's yeah. saying a lot. That's saying yeah. a lot. Fantastic Mr. Fox is also pretty great as well. I'm not going to use quite that same word. Um, I, I think it does such an immersive job of getting you in this world and it has great voice acting and all the animation. It's it's so meticulous and it feels like it has like a real structure to it. Even though it's in this world where like zany things happen, there, it has that great stop motion thing where there is an internal working logic that keeps you invested in what's going on. And also at the same time, what I like about his adaptation is that it kind of fits also into Roald Dahl, I think, his original idea with that novel or that children's book, which is basically that it, it feels like it's a story about animals persevering despite humanity's interference with nature. And I think they do such a great job even establishing that here, where they have, like, the farmers at the end of the story and the animals are still in, like, a very similar state to where they were pretty much at the start. But at the same time, at least the animals have found a way to adapt into the sewers. I, I love that shot of the apartment complex basically being created in this in these sewers, where it's like it shows that these animals are resilient and they can adapt and they can you know go over and steal some stuff from the supermarket. While we're still obsessed with trying to do one singular goal, there are several steps ahead. I think that's actually an interesting way of how it kind of develops and grows from what Roald Dahl originally did in his in his children's book, and that's why I think it makes it probably the best Roald Dahl adaptation and one of the best stop motion movies in recent years, for sure. But um, you know, we talked at one point that uh, Henry Selick's worked with 
Mr. Wes Anderson previously. He was going to do the animation for this, but opted out to do Coraline, uh, which was also nominated for Best Animated Film along with this one. Okay, real quick. What won the year <laughs> that Mr. Fox and Coraline were nominated? Up. Oh, well, okay, I guess it can't be upset. I, I was kind of sad because that was also the year Princess and the Frog got nominated, and that's probably my favorite Disney movie. That's a, also, that's a really good lineup. Also, the, the fifth one is a movie called Secret of Kells, which is done by That's this... a great movie. Yeah, yes, great movie. thank you. I, I, more people need to see that movie. I'll, honestly, everything that, that, that studio does. Right. Uh, anyway, before he did Coraline, uh, he did another movie that we're going to talk about right now called Monkey Bone. From the director of The Nightmare Before Christmas. Hello? Am I dead? Hiya, boss. Comes the story of a man whose imagination brought a monkey to life. And a monkey who wanted a life of his own. Whoa, baby! This spring, if it screams... <laughs> if it swings... Ooga, ooga, da, da, da! It's got to be Monkey Bone. So yeah. Monkey Bone <laughs> um, was, as I mentioned, it's the uh, third film from Henry Selleck, who was a stop-motion animator who you would know from, obviously. He was the actual director of Nightmare Before Christmas, not Tim Burton. But he, before that, even, he served as a Disney animator alongside Tim Burton, like doing a lot of storyboard artist stuff and in-betweens. In fact, he was a storyboard artist on a film we covered on our last episode, Return to Us. So we got a little bit of a uh, through line going here. Yes, and of course he also helped create Leica, which before it was the Leica Studios, it was the studio that Mr. Will Vinton did his stop motion at, which he did the stuff for Return to Oz as well. Well, look at that. Holy cuss. Yes, indeed. Yes, uh, it's just uh, cussing everywhere. If you're wondering, hey, why are you talking about Monkey Bone? Um, oh, there's reasons. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of reasons, because uh, this was um, his attempt at breaking into a bit more live-action, stop-motion combination. It's written by Sam Hamm, who wrote uh, stuff like the Tim Burton Batman, amongst other things, and was based on a graphic novel called Dark Town, which um, it's very different from that graphic novel from what I've heard. And uh, apparently it had to do a lot with a lot of studio meddling on this movie. Um, it was very severely edited together from what was originally supposed to be a much more dark comedy fantasy film. A illustrator who who does comic strips, Stu Miley, played by Brendan Fraser here, um, has a cartoon created out of his comic strip called Monkey Bone, and he's in love with Bridget Fonda, and he's about to propose to her when he ends up dying, and he ends up going to this sort of under, sort of purgatory land of, uh, called, uh, Downtown, um, where basically people who are in comas go, and he's gonna end up getting his plug pulled, but also he has, uh, various different sort of figments of his imagination show up, including Monkey Bone himself, his creation, voiced by John Turturro here, uh, ends up, uh, trying to help him get out of his coma state, but ends up backstabbing him, quite obviously. Uh, I don't know why you would ever trust this fucking character um, yeah. at all. And a Monkey Bone takes his place inside of his body, and so we get Brendan Fraser doing a lot of mugging and silly shit. Yeah. Yep, we get a lot of that. I remember I actually was one of the few people who saw this in a theater. Cause, uh, oh, no. Well, because <laughs> well, at, at the time, I was such a Tim Burton kid as I've talked about previously in our Tim Burton episode. And this looked so much like it was trying to ape Tim Burton style, admittingly. Um, and I was so interested to see, like, what it was. And it was another one of many times I've talked about in here where, like, oh, hey, I don't get this right now, but I'm a kid. I'll probably get it when I'm an adult. And I'm an adult now. It's the first time I've probably seen it since it was on, like, Comedy Central all the time. It played a lot. 
aside from the stop motion, which I think is still pretty incredible, Seth like obviously knows how to manipulate like the monkey bone character. It's a technical marvel, definitely. Um, this is a fucking trash heap of a movie. <laughs> it's so poorly put together. But Scott, our guest, why don't you go a bit more into your thoughts about monkey bone? Yeah, so I think I watched this during one of those lazy Sundays when Comedy Central was on and they would show movies all the time, and I was too lazy to change the channel during Monkey Bunk. Well, back then I didn't think much of it other than this was stupid. And now that I'm more of a, I guess I'm more of a cinephile, and kind of going to this movie, I realized, man, this is so bad that there had to be something wrong. And Upon research, there's a whole lot that went totally goo-goo bananas. And you can feel that in the movie where for the first 35 minutes, I was kind of like, this is not good. I can kind of see where it's going, though. Like, there's some ideas going on here. And then there's the bit when Monkey Bone gets back into the real world. And then the movie just goes into free fall, man. It becomes such a disaster that my mouth was agape as it was going on. Because you realize that... Some people, from looking into some interviews, in fact, there was a very famous Instagram post from Rose McGowan saying that Henry Selleck might have been taken off the production of this movie. And you can kind of feel it around the time that this movie jumps from being all about the surreal, carnival-esque coma town area and then back to live action where there's just nonstop silliness that's so aggravating goes on. And it's, and it's edited so weirdly where the plot doesn't make any sense for why Monkey Bone needs to go and make nightmares happen. Like, that's his modus operandi as given to him by Hypnos, the sleep god, played by Giancarlo Esposito, which I completely forgot about. It's fucking Gus Fring from Breaking Bad. Ba- basically, bug- Buggin' Out is doing a Tim Curry impression. A pretty good one, I'll say, but it is just more of part of the, what? Why is this film doing that? Right, and, like, he's also, I think, a pretty good technical Marvel, where he's sort of like a satyr, and the actual, like, the puppetry to use to, like, have his little satyr legs is actually pretty good. I like the look of his character a lot. But his whole, like I said, motivation is about, like, oh, hey, um, we need to have Monkey Bone go out there and create nightmares so we can film, have nightmares, like, show in our theater. But in this coma town, it just seems like people go here automatically when they're in a coma, and I don't know if there's, like, any real economy that you need. Like, why Why do you need him to make nightmares and have people go? They, they'll probably go there anyway because they're stuck in the coma town. This doesn't make any sense! Yeah, dude. Uh, I remember the previews for this came out, and all I could think of was Cool World. Yeah, it's uh, very Cool World, yes. It's, it's a very well, Cool World. It's super Cool World and also Beetlejuice. Right, but anyways. Uh, <laughs> shut up, Scott. Damn it, it's my turn. <laughs> <laughs> Put, put you in the pack, Adam. It's just not very good. I, I know it's got fans, and I even remember people, like, really kind of champion this movie. Like, kids I knew and stuff. And I just, I just watched it. No, I don't get it. I didn't get it then. It's not that I don't get it. I mean, I'm not, you know, stupid. It's, I don't see what there is to get out of this movie. Other than the stop motion and, like, some of the... Like, some of the stuff down in downtown is kind of cool, like the big heads and the way the bull guy looks and stuff like that. Some of it's done really, really well. But it's just Rose McGowan's cleavage, a really weird Bridget Fonda performance, and a hammy Brendan Fraser. One of her last performances, sadly enough, before she stopped acting. 
This is one of Bridget Fonda's last performances. Like, because there was that, in 2001, she had, like, four movies come out, and this was, like, I think the first of those. And then she stopped acting. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, and what the thing is, Scott was kind of teasing this earlier. I do agree. I think there was a good movie in this. I think some of the ideas that Henry Salick had originally for this sound interesting, especially where the role of the Brendan Fraser character, he originally envisioned Nicolas Cage, who would have been, I think, a much better choice as, like, a crazy cartoonist guy who goes into a coma state. And then also when he becomes Monkey Bone would have been more interesting oh, God, to me. Could you imagine? That would have been way more interesting, though, than, like, Brendan Fraser doing... God bless him, he's trying, but it's fucking terrible. Bad. Oh, God, it, it kills me, because in the beginning, there's clearly, like, this... Uh, satire going on with the whole like branding and marketing and, and how, like how he's supposed to embrace this very crude cartoon that became so big and like you can see that with some of the early bits where he's just kind of more frustrated and surprised and like when he draws a picture of Monkey Bone like with a gun up to his head it's like I can kind of see where this is going when Monkey Bone becomes Brendan Fraser he's just going so over the top and so hammy that it, it's it's mind meltingly terrible and you can feel that because forget the whole nightmares thing all he wants to do is have sex with bridget fonda and they just go on with that by having the worst musical cues you could possibly have this terrible climax that's just an embarrassment of they even use like these cartoony sound effects when people get knocked over so you can't even tell what the tone of this movie is well i think the problem is it's trying to be both like a Tim Burton dark comedy, but also a specifically early 2000s post-American Pie comedy. Like, and those don't mesh at all together. It's like gasoline and chocolate. That that doesn't fucking work. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can see what potentially Rose McGowan was talking about, where, like, the stuff that especially is, like, in the real world during that climax and stuff feels like it was definitely more something like a Tomcat's. Like, that's what I was thinking of watching it, like, a really bad early 2000s attempting to be road trip or American Pie crass comedy. It just is so flatly shot and just doesn't fit at all with, as a contrast to the other world. Because, like, Henry Selick's done live action before with, like, James and the Giant Peach, which I actually rewatched recently. And what works about that is that the live action is also stylized, so it fits in sort of the general world that's still going on here at the same time. Um, like, even when they go to New York and you got fucking Mike Starr in, like, the old-school cop uniform from, like, the 40s and shit, and it's New York City! Like, it, it feels at least like they're going for more overall aesthetic that fits versus the stuff in the real world that's just so boringly, plainly shot. And I agree, like, so much of the acting is so poor there, where you've got Brendan Fraser being over-the-top and silly in a way that's trying too hard, and then you got Bridget Fonda not giving a shit, clearly being like, man, I just want to marry Danny Elfman and get out of here. <laughs> that's what is on her face this whole movie. Uh, and then you also got, like, Megan Mullally in maybe her least funny performance in anything, where she's the worst, most annoying, like, sister character. Anybody. I mean, that's the thing. It doesn't even matter that it was her. It was just a shitty character. Well, right, because she's trying to kill him, I guess, for an inheritance, but with the way this movie's edited, I don't know why she has this interest in just killing him. Right, they, at all. They never explain why the fuck she wants to kill him so fast. So, so many characters and so many plots in this movie are just like are just like that's annoying and then they drop it that's annoying and then they drop it there's a whole fast food thing with monkey bow that's annoying and then they drop it and then you see chris castan as the gymnast zombie which i've seen people like oh this is a good physical performance and it just looks kind of wonky because he's supposed to be limp but also static at the same time so it's not it's just not a very entertaining like physical performance 
performance to watch. There's Whoopi Goldberg as Death. She's just very blasé to the whole, like, eh, it's, eh, it's monkey bone. Eh, what can you do? I, I'd almost argue that Chris Kattan might be the only live-action part that actually works in this, because... I was going to say... <laughs> he's trying. He's actually doing a pretty good Brendan Fraser impression, honestly. I agree. That, that is, is true. And plus, like, the whole thing where it's he's being chased by another Breaking Bad later alum, Bob Odenkirk, as the doctor who's trying to get the organs back that he was harvesting from this organ dealer gymnast. I think that's the funniest bit in the live-action segments. I think that's the most consistently funny thing I found during that. It might be a bit of Stockholm Syndrome, because I was not laughing at all prior to that, really. No, I, oh, I, I didn't even laugh at that. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna sugarcoat it, but I at least was able to watch it and not groan for... A minute. Because there's at least some kind of creativity going on with that set piece. That's a bit mm-hmm. odd. That's a bit interesting as opposed to Brendan Fraser singing She's a Brick House! Oh, oh god. So, so bad. There's another plot. Why does Bridget Fonda have nightmare juice? Oh, it's because it's, it's, it's the nightmare juice is going to make the nightmare things. But then the plot goes eh, the nightmare juice thing isn't important. It's only so Dave Foley has a really bad joke where his face turns purple and he, and he talks to the camera. It's like so much of this is like you could feel how messed up this was behind the scenes because the third person here we haven't mentioned yet is Chris Columbus, you know, the famous director who did Home Alone and Harry Potter and all kinds of stuff. Supposedly, not only was he a big executive producer, but also he might have done some of the editing that might have affected this movie. I'd argue if that's the case, then it was for the better because I don't. Yeah, there might have been a good idea here. But with all the talent involved, not any of it came to light. I mean, this movie is just a fucking mess all over the place. Like I said, I mean, this is a reach to use it for a stop-motion animation movie because it is basically only Monkey Bone and then the couple creatures in the beginning. But the stop-motion animation is the good part. Like you said, Thomas, it's the only part of the movie that actually does work. Like, it looks decent. Arnett, this movie, oh god, is it terrible? Well, yeah, and principally <laughs> with, especially like we with the monkey bone character, our titular character, even before he is in Brendan Fraser's body, John Turturro doing the voice, it's such an aggressively annoying character, and I could see a world where like you could make him this annoying sort of satire of like that era of like especially adult animation post South Park. Like I could see a world where you were doing a satire of like that kind of we're pushing Crassus to be crass, and you actually kind of do some sort of commentary about an artist who regrets making a character like this and it becoming this huge marketing bonanza and he's forced to spend time with this character. I could see on paper that working, but Monkey Bone's such an aggressively annoying and unlikable and unfunny character that even the gorgeous stop motion being used to bring him to life feels wasted on such a awful character and then when he's Brendan Fraser it's even worse because there's not even stop motion to look at and it's just Brendan Fraser with like a shitty soul patch and just sideburns and and sideburns right being full douche so yeah just none of that works and even just the inner workings of hell don't make any sense I think because of how weirdly edited all this stuff is where I think maybe the edit we had would have at least made more sense as a movie as opposed to, like, how they cut around things, and how, like, there's one point where Brendan Fraser drops to Whoopi Goldberg death about, like, oh, by the way, I was talking to Hypnos, your brother. Where was that? Where was that? Or, I guess that's another thing that got cut. Oh, oh, because they were both black, maybe. You were just supposed to put it together. And as I mentioned, Thomas Hayden Church also being really wasted as her assistant, and being uh, the one dude who won his name taken off. I'm surprised he managed to get that taken off. Good for him. 
Well, they were probably like, I don't care. Who the hell is Thomas Hayden Church right now? It was Lowell from Wings. That was about it. Even thinking about the timing when this movie came out, because we, you can definitely feel it wants to be a Tim Burton movie. But this also came out in the era when there was, I guess, more like mature, like crude, shocking stop motion out there. So this was around the time that like the PJs was out, Celebrity Deathmatch was out, Gary and Mike was out. A lot of times where it's like it's starting to be a bit more like understood and mainstream but then they just kind of folded back by i think kind of re- relying too much on the henry Selleck look and aesthetic of like it has to be dark and dreary but here it's like far more confusing and strange especially in the way that like okay monkey bone is moves really well but his look is not very unique it, it, it feels no, like it would fit all. in with any yeah. cartoon network show like if it was like 2d animated like the opening scene of this movie or even like even older like Felix the Cat type even look. Yeah, like... There, there's like, no real detail or defining characteristics. Yeah, like, when I think about the art of this movie, I just think about how it's wasted because there's a really neat scene where they kind of, like, hint at, like, what Stu Miley was like before he did Monkey Bone. And you see this really great photo where Brendan Fraser's head on, like, this operating table with all these bug creatures, and it's a gorgeous photo. And it's like, oh, well, if they're going to bring those nightmares. That's probably going to be kind of cool. No, they did it for one scene. One scene. Real quick. Yep. One scene. And did anybody else get the impression, maybe it's just me, that John Turturro was totally doing a Steve Buscemi impersonation? I could see that. Yeah, a bit. I did not hear John Turturro at all. It's a bit too high energy to be Steve Buscemi, though. That's the key difference, is that the sort of high energy manicness of it was me like, oh, that's Totoro. And it's also, it's, it's like I said, he's just pushing the limits so hard of doing that. And it's certain ideas that I think could be interesting, like they have a scene where Stu is like locked away in a prison, uh, Stephen King is there. I think that's a cute idea for a joke, and they just do nothing with it, really. And also Edgar Allan Poe's well, there. But then other people like Attila the Hun and Lizzie Borden, which is like, so what's the joke here? Is it artists or is it just any famous like horror somewhat person, similar? Right. Yeah. Right. It feels like I said, like, this is such a like post South Park attempt at like, oh, if we're just crass, then that makes us like funny. They have death reference South Park, for God's sakes. Yes, and uh, by the way, also, um, I mentioned Nicolas Cage. Death, their original vision for, um, Henry Selleck's original vision was getting Christopher Walken. Well, we got that in Click, so... <laughs> Sadly, as, as lazy as that movie is, it's a slightly better movie than this one. Yeah, I know. I know. It's true. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, so we're, we're winning a bit on fumes with the craziness of Monkey Bone. So, Scott, your, your final thoughts on Monkey Bone. Okay, so... God, what a mess of a movie. And I don't say that very often, but you can just feel it in every aspect here, performance-wise, editing-wise, animation style-wise. I'm not sure like where the jump was from, from Henry Selleck reading this graphic novel to jump from here to there. What's really telling about this movie is that you have this gorgeous stop-motion animated monkey who is over-the-top and tells mature range jokes and he's all about sex. What's the most iconic image from this movie it's rose mcgowan as a cat girl and that i think that really goes to show how much this movie fails on an artistic level and then just reading up on how much stuff went wrong if you're in the fan base for this i would highly recommend you re-inspect this in fact 
think about like Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice works because it's not about Beetlejuice. It's he's not in the movie all that much. It's more like this is a story about death and reflecting on it and like making fun of yuppie culture. This is just aggressively annoying and that makes it just a pain to watch. That's a really good point, actually, is that Monkey Bone is basically like if you had Beetlejuice the whole movie. And it's like, oh, this would not work. Uh, but Adam, your final thoughts. I Again, pretty much echo everything Scott said. I think this is, and I do say it often, this is a mess of a movie. I, I mean, there's nothing funny. Really uncomfortable sexual humor. Just, it's a terrible film, dude. It, it, and this is, look, I'll always give Brendan Fraser credit only on the point where he always made himself look like an idiot and did not care. Like, he did it all the time, and it worked. Well, worked might be a little bit of a strong word, but he always did it. Uh, but that being said, it, it, it's just, no. If Chris Kattan is the strong point of your movie, you've made a huge mistake. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, just a side note, I did feel like more creeped out watching this movie, and that I think that's just more considering what... Uh, Rose McGowan has had to go through, and especially as we learn lately, what Brendan Fraser has had to go through. I just felt so much more like gross, uh, like uncomfortable watching this movie. And then on top, the cherry on top of that is Harry Knowles has a cameo. The cherry on that creep Sunday. <laughs> anyway, uh, so I agree pretty much with everything about Monkey Bone. It has some curious ideas to it, but it's ultimately just really depressing, especially considering Henry Selleck has only made four feature films. And the fact that one-fourth of those is Monkey Bone is so sad. Because <laughs> I would love to see that dude keep doing stuff. Because along with admittingly some of the production difficulties that you've talked about, Scott, with this and Chris Columbus and all that, at the same time, I've heard a lot of stories about him being very difficult to work with. Like, he animated a movie with Disney, I think it's called like The Moon King, I believe is what it was called. They were 60% of the way through it. And Disney was like, hey, dude, uh, we don't want to work with you anymore, so you can take the footage and shop it around to somewhere else. We won't even keep the rights, because we just want to deal with you anymore. <laughs> and he's also done similar things with, like, Pixar. He was about to do something with, and they similarly kicked him out and other stuff. Like, he's gone through so many people, and it's such a shame that, like, he seems like such a great artist, but also a very difficult person to work with, that we haven't gotten a movie from him in a decade. We're supposedly going to get, like, that Netflix demon movie with, like, him and Key and Peele doing the voices. I mean, I hope that comes out. But also, at the same time, just like I said, the fact that he has so little, like, actual work out there, and that one of them is this awful mess that barely utilizes his stop-motion talents is a pretty big shame. And that's the end of that shameful discussion about <laughs> our stop-motion animated films. Um, before we go, and before we do our picking for next week's episode, which will be pretty interesting. Stick to, stay tuned for that. Um, we have some feedback to read, because we asked all of you via the at Pod Facebook and Twitter page about your favorite and least favorite uses of stop motion. And uh, first, we uh, got one from Tori DePina here, who says, uh, To be honest, I really can't think of a terrible example. Uh, maybe something obscure, like after last season for stop motion animation. As for best, there is Fantastic Planet, Nightmare Before Christmas, Coraline, Fantastic Mr. Fox, and Mary and Max. Uh, Dan Chambo says, I love Prometheus and Bob on Kablam. It's funny, but Ed 209 is in Robocop is stop motion animation, and they did a pretty good job there. Uh, Jason 
and the Argonauts blew my mind as a kid, and then as a teen, I loved the Army of Darkness stop-motion stuff. I guess if I'm looking to pick a favorite, it would probably be Small Soldiers. Bad, uh, I don't know. I really don't get into Wallace and Gromit and the other English stop-motion movies. Tool had some kick-ass stop-motion anime music videos, though. Uh, Luke McBride said Chicken Run was shite. <laughs> uh, I, I watched Chicken Run recently. It, it's very ho-hum. I, I will not take the slander against Chicken Run. Um, James Rodriguez says, uh, this may be considered sacrilege, but I don't like Fantastic Mr. Fox. I've watched it multiple times, uh, but it's left me cold upon each viewing. My favorite use of stop motion animation has been in the emotionally adult My Life as a Courgette, uh, Wallace and Gromit in The Curse of the Were-Rabbit, and the use of Ash's hand in Evil Dead 2. Uh, special mention deserved to short amount of it used in the It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia Christmas special. And uh, Lance Langford, The Horror Returns, says, uh, Hats off to the great master Ray Harryhausen, truly the OG of stop-motion animation. How many times have you heard, Release the Kraken? I also give serious props to Henry Selig and his brilliant direction on Nightmare Before Christmas and Coraline. Uh, yeah, as James Rogers asked, I'm glad he brought up uh, My Life as a Zucchini, or My Life as a Courgette was an Oscar-nominated movie from, I believe, two years ago. It's on Netflix it's fantastic. I think everyone should go watch it. It's only 69 minutes long. Like, if you watched Shazam this weekend and realized, huh, this has a positive version of a foster home or a foster family, this movie has one of those. And I, I highly recommend it. You can watch it uh, in the French version or the English version. Both are great. Highly recommended. Yeah, um, I also was glad to see Dan shout out, um, of all things, Prometheus and Bob from Kablam, which for those of you who don't know, Kablam was like an anthology show that was on Nickelodeon that had various animated recurring segments. And one of them was Prometheus and Bob, which was like where an alien tried to teach a caveman how to do certain things and it would always blow up in his face as he did like video logs about it. That was actually probably the most underrated segment of that show. It actually had like a lot of clever ideas to it. I do yeah. not remember that at all. I, I do. I do. I do. It, it was more like the more quiet kind of funny compared to other stuff on Kablam. I'm also glad he brought up uh, music videos because that is a pretty great way to explore some different things. Uh, the Tool song I think he's mentioning is Sober, which is really good. But there's tons out there. There's obviously uh, Peter Gabriel's Sledgehammer. Right. I mentioned uh, Partisan Classics, which is, which is an animation studio. Three of them are directed by Michelle Gondry that I would highly recommend anyone see, and that includes uh, Fell in Love with a Girl by the White Stripes with the Legos, uh, Walkie Talkie Man by Stereogram, which has, like, yarn, and then Snowbound by Donald Fagan of Steely Dan. Right, and one that actually I would recommend, it's vaguely stop motion. I think it's more like the pop art way that you were talking about with A Town Called Panic earlier at the beginning of the episode, um, is the music video for Don't Play No Game That I Can't Win by Spike Jones for uh, the last Beastie Boys album which was done with all action yeah, figures. Yeah, that was really good. Yeah, that's that was a, really good. Right, yeah. I really love that one, too. I just want to say, holy shit, I'm not disagreeing with Lance. <laughs> for, for once. I, I mean, the rivalry, is it dead? Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. But, no, because fuck Lance. But, uh, James, man, that's borderline sacrilegious. I, mean, I don't like man, Fantastic Mr. Fox. I mean, don't get me wrong, James. I love that you're a listener. I love you on the, you know, that you, uh, you write in and stuff. But, you know, I don't know, man. Maybe, maybe take a shower or something. Think about this. <laughs> um, and yeah, and like I said before, um, I, I will not take this chicken run slander. I oh, love chicken, chicken run. run. Shit. Oh my god, what are you talking about? It's so great. I, I, I just watch it. It is very one note. Ah, oh, you people. 
And I also never really got into the Wallace and Gromit stuff. I mean, Curse of the Were-Rabbit. Now, now okay. I, I will fight you there, because I, I, if I... I didn't actually, say it was bad, I said I didn't well, get into it. Well, I'm just going to say that if, if we're talking Artemis, the best Artemis, I would say, is the Shaun the Sheep movie that came out a couple years ago. Yeah. That one was pretty good, I'll give you that. That was and, actually kind of fun. And now we have a sequel coming out this summer. Yes, looking forward to that. I think it's called uh, Sheepageddon. Yeah, I also really like um, the, the Pirates one, Band of Misfits. Pirates is really good. good. Uh, yeah. Honestly, I think you can't go wrong with Laika. I would say Kubo and Two Strings is probably their masterpiece, but I agree. You couldn't go wrong with anything Laika's made. And yeah, I you... absolutely love and champion Paranorman to anybody who hasn't seen it. I think Paranorman, there are so many things in that movie that were honestly groundbreaking for children's animation at the time. Uh, I mean, even just having a homosexual character be one of the main characters. It's like, whoa, and it's just out there, and they say it. Like, it's not hidden, or is he, or isn't he? Just even that, and then it, it just, God, I love Paranorman. I think Paranorman is almost perfect. Yeah, that and Coraline, I think, are great examples of introductory horror movies for kids. Oh, yeah, 100%. Big time. Yeah, uh, I think those work really well for that. Um, and I will agree, I think Kubo's their best. And even, I did see Missing Link, you can read a review over at marianitomas.wordpress.com. And even with their lesser movies, like I would say Missing Link is, there's still so much creativity going on with so much of what's on display there. Or like Box Trolls, I'm not a huge fan of either, but I... No, but it's it's fucking so beautifully done. Yes. I, I think if you're a stop-motion fan, like I also saw Missing Link, and I thought it was super delightful. And what's neat about it is that it's very different than Laika's other work because it's so bright and more comedic-focused. But the animation of it is seamless in a way that's almost kind of disturbing. No, I did like it. Don't get me wrong. I did enjoy it. I liked it. Even at their lesser examples, they still deliver such beautiful animation that you can't go wrong. And as we mentioned also... um, financed by nike so even if missing link doesn't do that well they'll still keep getting money yeah they'll be fine yeah they'll be fine yes and uh we also got some feedback about our last episode about fantasy films uh lance said this um just making a wild guess that adam thomas considers both of these masterpieces and slobbers all over each individual frame of these films. I'll and see. there's the rivalry again. <laughs> um, and we also got uh, Beatrix Hopper said, Return to Oz is fantastic. Uh, Jen Farrar uh, says, Dude, Return to Oz is hands down one of the best Oz creations ever made. Um, and then Oliver Sloan mentioned his favorite fantasy films uh, that we got a bit after we recorded, which was uh, Beastmaster, Excalibur, Sword and Sorcerer, The Fall, Anything by Del Toro, League of Ex- Extraordinary Gentlemen, and Jason and the Argonauts. League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. What the fuck? That's an interesting choice, Oliver. One of these things is not like the other. <laughs> that, that is, that's a very interesting choice. Well, always get, I can always count on Oliver though to come through with a ton of choices. Yes, as always. And then also, uh, Jeff L. just had a general comment for us on... We haven't mentioned it yet, but uh, he says, Congrats to you all for your 50th episode. It's the 50th episode, everybody! 50! Ah! Yeah! Almost a whole year! <laughs> Almost. Almost. Yes. Almost. We are getting there. Trudging along. 
Yeah, uh, we'll have a few episodes to indicate that. Our next two episodes will be very interesting. We'll get into that in just a bit. Uh, but thank you for the feedback, all of you, um, no matter what it was about in general. Um, and thanks also to Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used in our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Uh, thanks to Emily Scarda for the art for our show. She accepts commissions at Fiverr with two R's dot com slash E.E. Scarda. And of course, thanks to Mr. Scott Johnson for returning on this episode. Scott, what do you got to promote? Well, thank you very much, Thomas. Thomas and Thomas. Uh, for that. Law firm. <laughs> and we'll have Thomas and Thomas Wednesdays on NBC. <laughs> Thomas and Thomas, attorneys at law. Uh, yeah, intro can... by Scott Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at Scott PJ Thoughts. That is Scott with two T's, letter P, letter J, Thoughts. Uh, if you like movie reviews, you can find me on Stardust at Silky PJ, PJ. That is Silky with an I E, letter P, letter J. And if you like craft beer or drinking, you can find me on porchdrinking.com where I do uh, sh- beer showcases, pop culture pairings, and homebrewing. Uh, two articles you could check out recently is one I think that's about to be published is Six Beers to Watch with Great Netflix Underrated Movies. So it includes films like Bow to Buster Scruggs, uh, Cam, and A Futile and Stupid Gesture. I would also recommend the ultimate six-pack you can have with the 2018 Oscars. So we picked beers to go with all of the Best Picture nominees from last year. I I think my favorite one to pair with that was a pineapple beer with the favorite. (laughs) I gotta ask. I'm gonna put you on the spot right now. If you had to pick a beer to pair with uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox, what are you going with? I got my choice, but I want to get yours. I would not pick a beer. I would pick a cider. Oh, come on. You pick a hard cider, it's perfect. What are you talking about? Nah, I, well, I just don't like hard cider. I was going to go with that. Ciders. There's probably a craft cidery where... I don't like... Where, oh, considering where you live, I, there is good-ass cider. There. Oh, yeah, dude, Bell's. Uh, I'm not... Blake's is right here. They make their own... Yeah, uh, man. Yeah, no, I can't do it, though. Maybe if I was to twist it, I would say mead. But I oh, would not... Oh, God, pick... that's even worse. What are we? <laughs> fucking Vikings? No, I go... I go, uh... Best Brown Ale by Bell's. Well, I have seen the artwork for that. That is perfect. This was a waste of my time. <laughs> hey, at least I didn't pick a beer from Monkey Bone. You shouldn't drink and watch Monkey Bone. Oh, yeah. Like... It, it, well, if you do, it's a, it's got to be like... Oh, it would be that banana bread beer I see everywhere. Oh, God. Or like the chili pepper beer. What it should be is just like you have like a container that has like the banana bread beer it's like halfway full and then you put the chili beer in because it's such a weird concoction yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's been out for like a day or two in the sun oh, and that, so you drink it it's that, disgusting that reminds me i think stone came out with a beer a, a crazy ghost pepper beer and they just called it punishment that'd be great yeah, with that this. makes sense yeah or collect like hobo piss that he's been drinking mad dog all day <laughs> just get his pee and drink it Exactly. <laughs> Find us on Twitter and Facebook at DEDBPod. That's where every Monday we put out those feelers about what's your favorite and least favorite things um, for a topic that we're doing. So the one for our next episode should be up at the time we're posting this one. Um, and then also you can email us at bill all spelled out at gmail.com. Um, and you can also find me on my own individual account at not the who's Tommy on Twitter. And also, like I said, Mariani Thomas at wordpress.com for a review of missing link and other things as well. And, uh, you can find Adam, uh, being animated at 24 frames per second to be done for this show. Yeah, pretty much. That's about it for me. Oh, and, uh, if you haven't yet, uh, listen to the latest episode of the horror returns. It was a episode covering the original and the remake of pet cemetery that I was recently featured on. 
There's a lot of uh, crazy shit that happens during the episode, but it was still fun. Lots of twists and surprises, and clearly Lance Langford was not in charge of the editing of that episode. I don't think Lance Langford is in charge of anything during that episode. <laughs> I, think it was, I think his wife was. Yes, uh, it's, it's an interesting <laughs> listen. For sure. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Uh, rate and review us to give the show more visibility. Um, definitely, we need that as much as you can. Please. Yeah, come Please. on. Uh, come on, we're almost at a year. We, we need I, a birthday I, present. I, I want to all of our regular listeners, because we do have some regular listeners. Vaguely. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> give, probably. Give them, a, give them a present. It's a Just present for the iTunes, podcast. Man. Just go on iTunes. Give us a five. Leave a comment. Uh, uh, present company fucking included. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, also keep in mind, uh, you can also put that out there on Spotify or YouTube or the Podbean app, any of those things. If you just get the word out, spread it even, just even share the link to somebody, whatever, uh, we would appreciate that for sure. Um, And now it's time for our pick in for next week. As we mentioned before, this is our 50th episode. And by the nature of our show, where at the end of every episode for the next week's topic, each of us has two either good or bad movies. um, And we both have to select number between one and 10 in order to decide what our double feature is for the next week of a good and bad feature. Um, In the process of doing that, there's always a second option for each of us that gets left in the dust. Are you saying there's a hundred movies that we've mentioned that haven't been covered yet? Technically 98, because two of them we have covered later on the show. What? (laughs) Yes. Uh, So, um, basically what we're going to do is we are going to give those movies we haven't gotten a chance a chance at Redemption! I don't know why I made this noise. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a <laughs> that's a really bad choice. Um, Rise from your grave. <laughs> oh, uh, but, but yes, yeah, so basically, Adam has two former bad choices that he had in the past, and I have two former good choices I had, and um, we we kept a list of them. And as I've said before, if you go on our Facebook and Twitter page, I'll have the list of both the good and bad movies that uh, Adam and I have attempted to choose. That uh, yeah, it's a pretty big list of very diverse films. So there's a lot we could go with on this. Fucking least. Yeah, I'm very. I, but you know what though, this one I'm excited about too because it's not a specific topic. I think this will be kind of fun. Yep, it'll be almost random double feature potentially ever. But uh, let's put that to the test with Scott, since you're a guest. We always have our guest pick a number between 1 and 10 for both the choices. So for my two good alternate choices, number between 1 and 10. I will pick number 5. Okay, that is closest to number 8, which I had uh, my alternative choice for the Coen Brothers episode we did, Inside Llewellyn Davis. Uh, I love that movie. I probably loved it more the second time I saw it, so yeah. As Which is, I've only seen it once, so maybe I'll enjoy it more the second time. As is often the case with Coen Brothers movies. And at number one, I had my alternative choice for the film noir episode, Kiss Me Deadly, from 1955. That's a good one, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're bo- both of them were good choices, as one you can tell. One of my choices is a fucking film noir movie, too. Uh-oh. Ooh. Uh-oh. Um, <laughs> so, Scott, now for Adam's two bad choices. Following up, let's do number two. At number three, I have the Kurt Russell Escape from L.A. Oh yeah. my god, that's such a weird-ass double feature. <laughs> Wait, what What episode is that connected to? Dystopian Future. Yeah. <laughs> oh, fuck me. 
And at number nine, I had uh, Black Dahlia. Which was our film noir one, yeah. Which was our film noir one. Um, um, at least... escape <laughs> from L.A. So, uh, look forward to that next week, and thanks, Scott, for uh, doing that pick in there. No problem. Yes, uh, but now we're at the end of the episode, folks, and uh, that means we gotta go do our little dance party, because we're in the middle of that supermarket. Let's dance! Long live the mother cussing tooch! And now we're dancing as the old folks on thin. Do 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 do